Cool. Thank you, God. <laughs> it's quite an introduction. Well, I'm excited this morning to share out of an invitation that I received from the Father coming into the new year. I had been asking God if there was anything he wanted to address in my life uh, coming into the new year, which is a custom for me. Probably many of you um, are in the habit of doing that. And while I was getting ready for work one morning, I just began to notice his, his still, small voice speaking to me, that voice that I've come to know and trust. And I felt like the Father was saying to me, Jono, stop searching for significance. Stop searching for significance. Jono, stop searching for significance. And when you hear this, it may sound to you like a rebuke. But to me, it was a a loving and a tender and an affectionate invitation from my father. It was like he was saying to me for the thousandth time, Jono, my son, what you're searching for, I've already given to you. It centered me and it comforted me. It's like he was saying, you're significant because I made you. You're significant because I love you. I don't know about you, but this is a struggle for me. In my flesh, my old man, I'm I'm constantly reaching and grabbing for something that I can point to, something that I can touch, that I can feel, and say, because of this thing that I can do or because of this thing that I have, I'm worthwhile. I'm significant. Learning to trust in God's love towards me and allowing that to be the source of my significance has been one of the most painful and difficult parts of my journey with Jesus. A lot of my life I've battled with things like insecurity, feelings of inferiority. You know, am I, do people want me around? Those sorts of things. So I want to talk about significance today. Is that all right? Am I significant? A few other questions that are connected to this one. Who am I? Do I matter? Am I worthwhile? It is, import- is it important that I'm here on this earth, that I exist? Am I worthy of love? Am I good? Do I belong? This question about significance, it's one of life's questions that demand an answer, I think. It's like it's got buoys tied to it. When we try to push it down, it just pops back up. It doesn't go away. I'm actually convinced that the way that we go about answering this question of our significance will be one of the most trajectory-shaping components of our lives, right? How many of you... um, have suffered in significant relationships with people whose attention you desperately desired, but their world revolved around deriving a sense of personal significance for themselves and they had no time for you. This impacts the way that we treat other people. This impacts the way that we see ourselves. This impacts every part of our lives. 
So I'd like to look today at how the enemy would have us answer this question about our significance, and then I'm going to look at the solution that the gospel answers, the solution that the gospel offers us. Is that okay? Let me, let me pray for us. Father, I, I feel a little sleepy. You know that Hudson woke me at three this morning. Um, but I really am confident that what you've given me to share matters because it's just good news. And so I pray that um, we could be encouraged by the proclamation of the gospel today. In Jesus' name. So how would the enemy have us answer this question about our significance? I'd like to look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness for some answers to this question. Oh, i got to turn it on, I think. There we go. So let's read this together. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No! The Scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, said, he, you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. I like that. Get out of here. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. So Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, then prove it. If you are significant, if you are worthwhile, if you are who God says you are, prove it. Now, it's important for us here to remember that just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter three, Jesus is being baptized. And right after he's baptized, the spirit descends upon him and we hear audibly the voice of the heavenly father declare over Jesus. What is it? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's before Jesus's public ministry had begun. It's before he had done anything especially significant. And the father is declaring over him authoritatively, this is my son 
and I'm pleased with him. And Jesus' enemy here in this next chapter, in the enemy of our souls, he comes to Jesus as he comes to us. And he says, I was there when the Father told you who you were. I was there. I heard it when the Father said, I'm pleased with you. I, I, I heard it when he said, you're my son. But I don't buy it and I don't think that you do either. Prove to me. Prove to yourself that you're significant. Have you ever heard this voice? Me too. I think it's worth noting here that in one of Satan's clearest biblical attempts to sidetrack Jesus' destiny, he comes to attack what the Father has declared to be true over him. To attack his confidence in who God has declared that he is. And I want to say today that if this is his strategy for Jesus, can't we assume that this will be his strategy for us? In this passage, I think we can see at least three ways that Satan tempts us to answer the question of significance. And I've come to learn in my own experience that this is the way that the systems of our world teach us to answer the question of our significance. So let's look at these three categories that I see in this passage. Metrics for measuring our significance. The first one I want to look at here, how am I performing? Satan says to Jesus, turn these stones to loaves. Show us you can do something. Then you'll be somebody. Many of you have probably been following the this, this story of a quarterback in the NFL named Brock Purdy. He's the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, the third string quarterback. He was the last pick in the 2022 draft. And I've learned as I've followed this story that they affectionately name the last pick in the NFL draft, Mr. Irrelevant. What's interesting about this title to me is that he was the last pick in the NFL draft but he made it into the NFL. <laughs> and the name that we've given him is Mr. Irrelevant. But the tides have turned for Brock Purdy. I'll discard that name. Uh, something happened with the first and second string quarterbacks, apparently, because now he is the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, and he has led the 49ers to the game today, which is the game before the Super Bowl. Pretty cool, right? And so they have renamed him the most relevant Mr. Irrelevant. This is a cruel system, isn't it? The second category... Satan gives us to determine whether or not we're significant is this. Well, what do others think of me? Satan says, jump off this point in the temple 
and let everyone see that God protects you. Then everyone will love you. Then you'll be significant. What other people think of us is a powerful thing. I think it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 6, the middle of Jesus' arguably most important sermon in his lifetime, the Sermon on the Mount, he devotes one-sixth about, about one-sixth of this three-chapter sermon to this theme of not doing things in order to be seen by others. When you do your good deeds, when you fast, when you pray, can you make sure that you're doing it for me? Can you make sure that you're doing it just before an audience of one? Can you show me that your confidence is me is in me and what I can do for you and not in other people and what they can do for you? Can you trust me and can you do the things that you're doing for me and not for other people? One of the most reoccurring reminders that the Father has given to me over my lifetime is this, Jonathan, I am the one who gives you everything that you need. I am the one that gives you everything that you need. It's nice when your coworkers respect you. It's nice when your friends respect you. But they don't give you what you need. I am the one that provides you with everything that you need. In James 1.17, we read that every good and perfect gift comes from above. I want to say that no person can stop God from giving you what he plans to give you. I, I'm inspired and have been inspired over the years reading the story of King David, where he was anointed by God to be king. The father set it in motion. This man is going to be king. But only one thing stood in the way. Saul, right? Who is seeking him out, deliberately trying to kill him. And I I believe two instances, David has an opportunity to claim the kingdom by killing Saul. But he is so confident that God is able to give him what he's promised he's going to give him, that he doesn't need to kill Saul in order to claim the kingdom. His confidence was in the Lord. The third category uh, that I believe we're given by our culture to measure our significance. What do I have? Satan says to Jesus, if you worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Then you will have something you can point to and say, because of this, I'm significant. I'm somebody special. Does anybody else find themselves taking inventory of what they have? When they begin to feel insecure, how much money do I have? How educated am I? If I have kids, are they well-behaved? Are they accomplished? How do I look? Am I in shape? Youthful? How many friends do I have? How many people take me seriously? Do I have any special skills? In the words of St. Napoleon of Dynamite, I don't even have any good skills, you know, like nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills. Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that movie is the worst to watch, but the best to talk about. Can you guys relate? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Yeah. So an observation about these metrics. They're all about me. They're all about me. If I am significant because of what, what I can accomplish, then if I'm doing well by these metrics, I am happy. But if I am doing poorly by these metrics, I am depressed. This is a lot of pressure. I want to share a quote here by Andrew Murray. God wanted one thing when he created the universe, to show in it the glory of his love, wisdom, and power. He meant for human beings to share in his perfection and blessedness as a part of that creation. God wanted to reveal himself in and through created beings by filling them to the brim with his own goodness and glory. This is the part that's important. But God did not give Adam and Eve some independent goodness for them to claim as their own apart from him. Guys, believing that we can make ourselves significant on our own is just pride. Got another quote. This is from Henry Nouwen. In the world, there are many other voices speaking loudly. Prove that you are the beloved. Prove you're worth something. Prove you have any contribution to make. Do something relevant. Be sure to make a name for yourself. At least have some power. Then people will love you. Then people will say you're wonderful. You're great. These voices are so strong. They touch our hidden insecurities and drive us to become very busy trying to prove to the world that we are good people who deserve some attention. Sometimes we think that our busyness is just an expression of our vocation, but Jesus knew that often our attempts to prove our worth are an example of temptation. Right after Jesus heard the voice say, you are my beloved, another voice said, prove you are the beloved. Do something. Change these stones into bread. Be sure you're famous. Jump from the temple. Jesus said, no, I don't have to prove anything. I'm already the beloved. So let's look at the gospel for a solution to this question of our significance for an answer. So we're going to look at Philippians 3, 3 through 9 together. Paul says to us, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now Paul says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So here's what I think Paul is saying to us this morning. I used to think that I was right with God because of my own efforts, 
because I was connected to the right groups of people, the Israelites, the Pharisees, because I was well-behaved, because of my zeal, my accomplishments. And then in verse 7 through 9, I'll read it again. I once thought these things were valuable. Now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become with him, come one with him. So what I want to say to us now is that because of what Jesus has done, you are invited to be one with the most significant being in the universe. Because of what Jesus has done, we are invited to be one, to be close, to be intimate, to be defined by the origin of all significance, the one who determines significance, the one who thought you and I were so significant that when we were at when we were at our worst, he paid the ultimate price to bring us close to him. So what did Jesus do on the cross? The cross is God's loud proclamation over you and over me that you matter to the God of the universe, therefore you matter. The cross is the sufficient payment for your sin. It is settled between you and God. The cross of Jesus is both proof of our significance and it's also what connects us to the source of our significance. Amen? Everyone is made in God's image. Everyone is significant. But divorce from the source of our significance, we will always be searching Orphans looking for home, needing to prove ourselves. But Jesus makes a way for us to become close with our Father. So here's the question that I want to wrap up with this morning before I give a little bit of practical stuff. What do you think makes you significant? Is it what you can do? Is it the opinions of other people? Is it what you have? I think these things are important, right? The, the gifts God's given us, they are significant, right? The, the gifts that we have, the possessions we have, the, the people in our life, these things are clearly significant, but they're not what make us significant. They're not what make us worthwhile, or are you significant because you are loved by God, because you are one with him through the sacrifice of Jesus? Where do we pull our nutrients from in our lives? You guys, I, I love Paul's language in Ephesians 3, his prayer over the church, that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of God, that, that our roots, that our affection seekers would go down into the nutrient-rich soil of the Father's affection and that we would draw deep from that well that doesn't run dry. Amen? Where are we pulling these nutrients from? So here's my summary this morning. Let's read this together. I used to think my performance, your opinions, and my possessions defined me. 
Now I know I'm loved by God and I've been reconciled to Him through Jesus. This is what makes me significant. So I want to share now just a couple of practical ways that I believe that we can grow in our ability to actually draw and pull up from the true source of significance. So how do we claim our gospel-centered significance? And Sam, is Sam in the room? Could you come up and tickle those keys for me? Sorry. <laughs> when I was in fusion, I would, we'd call it smellities or smooth melodies. Yeah, so how do we learn to live into our gospel-centered significance? My first thought is we can meditate on gospel passages. We can make a habit. We can be in the practice of, of just soaking in and memorizing and deeply reading and gnawing on gospel passages. You guys, I think some of the truths in the gospel anesthetized. You know, I, I think sometimes these realities are so mind-blowing and unbelievable, but we can hear them so regularly that they're lost on us a little bit. I, I, you know, I want to pray. Lord, I pray that some of these just unbelievable realities, like you became a man, entered into flesh forever so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that just even some of the, the religious skin that has begun to come over these realities, that they would be shed and that we would be able to see these things afresh, Lord, that, that where, where we, man, where, where we've just been playing in the dirt, trying to define ourselves by the opinions of other people, when the God of the universe, the only one with the authority and the ability to clearly define us and to declare over us who we actually are, we're, I don't know, I, I don't know that we're not interested, we're not able to see it, but Father, I pray that you would remove some of the, just the, I don't know, the over-familiarity with these just shockingly gorgeous truths in your gospel. One of the passages that I'll recommend, recommend to you is just Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God is in heaven happy, full of pleasure and joy and excitement over the fact that you will be reconciled to him through the life of his son. This is the most important thing going on in your life. <laughs> Father, I pray that this would be the most exciting thing to us. The second thought I had for how we can practically live into some of this stuff, and this is a difficult one. We can learn to receive failure, rejection, and loss as invitations to a deeper apprehension of our gospel-centered significance. We don't like this idea in America. And I'm not saying that failure, rejection, and loss is always God's plan, you know, his desire. I, sometimes I think maybe it is. But I know that in my life, these things 
maybe more than anything else, have served as invitations to come back home. Right? When, when the place where I was sucking up nutrients and it wasn't really working, um, when I'm missing it in that area, in that category, it's a reminder, oh, that stuff was never going to do it for me anyway. Father, I'm coming back home to you. I'm coming back home to you. Where we experience shame and anger and fear in our lives, these things can be, can be doorways to a deeper apprehension of the love of the Father. Sometimes we need a good spiritual friend to talk with and say, I failed and I feel absolutely worthless and humiliated. I never want to walk outside again. Could you help me to allow this to be an opportunity for me to receive the love of the Father again, to come back home? The next thought I had for a practical way I'm realizing I started the communion music a little early, but I like it. I like it. <laughs> Sabbath, solitude, and silence. These are three spiritual practices that uh, I think what makes them a little unique is they're not about what we do. It's actually about what we're not doing. And so sometimes, I don't know if it's an American thing or a human thing, but when I stop doing things, when, I'm, when I take a day like a Sabbath to not work and I'm just sitting still and quiet, some of those senses of places of false security start to surface in my heart and surface in my life. And when I take some time to practice solitude and silence where I'm just sitting still and I'm not accomplishing anything, it allows me to become aware of my anxiety. Why, why am I nervous about the fact that I'm not doing anything? Oh, it's probably because I have a difficulty believing that I'm valuable if I'm not accomplishing anything, right? And then the next uh, category here, the next is repentance. I think that is an opportunity for us to practice repentance and we can come to the Father and say, oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry that... Uh, I was looking to these people or I was looking to my possessions or I was looking to my accomplishments to convince myself that I was significant. Would you forgive me? And would you clothe me in your love again? And then lastly, I think that we can remember that this is God's work. You guys, it's the Holy Spirit's great joy to make us confident sons and daughters of God. So we have an opportunity to participate with him in this significant and important work. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that this is the Holy Spirit's work. That for each of us, he has an objective. He has a target on us. He desires to carve away the flesh and the old man that we could stand bare, clothed in his affection and clothed in his love. And this is a work that he is doing. And this is a work that he is going to do. Amen. So we're going to take communion now. If you guys want to go ahead and get out your uh, elements. And I just want us to pause for a minute. 
And let's ask God to show us where we're searching for significance apart from him. So we're going to take, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute. Father, would you show me this morning, where am I searching for significance in places, in empty wells, dry wells? Let's just take a minute and just in your own words, let's just repent. Repent is just a turning back, coming back home. So we'll take another 30 seconds or a minute just on your own in your own words. Let's come back home. in your communion elements. Let's take out the little cracker type thing. (laughs) Oh, you know what? I need one. Can you throw me one, Kelly? So, so sorry. So this is the body of Jesus that was broken for you. Let's receive this together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body that was broken for us as sufficient payment for our sins. Thank you, Lord, that there is profound hope for every single person in the room. There is no person in this room that cannot leave here today without being fully reconciled and restored to you without shame. Thank you for your body that was broken for us, Lord Jesus. And let's receive his blood that was shed for us. We thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, so that we can be reconciled to you and connected forever to the source of our significance, that we don't have to wonder anymore if we matter, if we're worthwhile, but because we were created in your image, because we've been restored to you perfectly through Jesus, 
We can stand up straight and tall, confident in our identity as beloved sons and daughters of the Almighty God. And Father, let's go ahead and stand up, you guys. I just want to pray this over us. Yeah, Lord, we don't want to be unaware of the devil's schemes this week. If the enemy were to, if the enemy targeted Jesus in this specific area, we know that he'll do the same for us. So I pray, Lord, that we could be on guard and that when the enemy comes to us and he begins to whisper to us, we don't matter, we're worthless, we don't belong, we need to prove ourselves. I pray, Lord, that something of boldness, that something of your Holy Spirit would, would stir up in us and that we'd be able to say no. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to prove. I can, I can get off the treadmill right now and never step back on for the rest of my life. Proverbial, proverbial treadmill. Yeah. So Lord Jesus, we receive your love today, your affection over us, our sonship, our daughterhood. Would you continue as we leave, Father, to clothe us in your love and your affection? And we're going to wrap up by praying over any friends, family that we have that are far from God. So if you could just call to your mind uh, a, a couple of people that you long for them to be able to experience the same intimacy and nearness belonging to Jesus that you've tasted of in your own life. Just call those people to your mind and we're going to pray this prayer together. Lord, I pray for the people in my life who are far from you. Deliver them from the evil one. Bring them into your family and help them to grow as your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Stay warm out there. Have a great week.